Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula and I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm really excited to share this interview this week with Eddie Stern, who is a yogi and author and lecturer from New York City. He's been studying yoga since 1987 and he runs the Broom Street Ganesha Temple in Soho. His latest book, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Change Your Life, examines a decade's worth of study on the correlations between the yogic and Western views of the nervous system and provides an in-depth look at the underlying scientific mechanisms that make yoga work. And this conversation was super enlightening on those points. We talk about the science, especially around breath and how powerful breathing is. And from the yogic perspective, why it is so important. We talk about the founding of the Ganesha temple and the cool story that happened around that. I was so lucky because I got to interview him in person in the temple. So I got to see the Ganesh and the setup there and all the beautiful work that has gone into this project. You can also hear a little bit of the sounds of the street. It was a beautiful day in New York City and everybody in New York was out on the street, it seemed. And of course, we're in Soho, so you can hear some sounds of cars and things like that. And in addition, unfortunately, the recorder cut off right at the end and I did not notice. So unlucky for you, you have you are going to miss a few of the rapid fire questions. So you don't get to find out that a person that inspires Eddie is David Bowie. And you don't also hear him tell about the different things he's reading. But we do share one book that he mentioned in the show notes. You can find that there. So um, this conversation is sweeping. You know, we talk about the guru relationship, we talk about yoga and its place now and his advice to people who are seekers on the path. So I really hope you enjoy it. Before we jump in, I do want to let you know that I have a couple of spots open starting this month for coaching with me. This is one-on-one Vedic business coaching specifically for our spiritual entrepreneurs working online who want to create a signature offer, learn how to sell it with ease, work through any personal blocks and utilize their cosmic blueprint, their karma map or birth chart to better align with reality and amplify their success. So if that's you, please go to the show notes and find a a link there to book a call with me and you'll find out more information about that and see if you're a good fit. So here's the interview with Eddie. Please enjoy. Hello, Eddie. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Paula. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. So we're in this beautiful space. Thank you. And I would love for you to just start by talking about this, the Broom Street Ganesh Temple. It's been a labor of love, right? It has been. We were here from 2000 to 2015, and then the building got sold. We had the option to try to purchase the temple, but some of our funding pulled out at the last moment. So we lost it. 
We lived in exile in the far-off land of Brooklyn for four years and then moved back to Manhattan, uh, closing our school in Brooklyn in 2019, 11 months before COVID happened. After we shifted to teaching online, I was using my friend Stefan's apartment up on the fourth floor. One day in September 2021, I was coming down in the elevator. The elevator doors opened on this floor, our old temple. And the um, business that was here that moved in after we moved out had vacated. They closed down during COVID and the space was empty again. Mm. I was with my friend Roberto and we took one look at it and thought we have to get this place back. And so by some magical means, we were able to. <laughs> and we got the place back, signed the lease again in December 2021. And interestingly enough, because uh, I know you like numbers, we signed the lease on December 2nd, 2021. And our first day in here, when we ever had the place, was on December 2nd, 2000. Okay. So exactly 21 years later, Oh. we were able to move in. So we got it on December 2nd in the year 2000. And then we moved back in on December 2nd, or signed our lease on December 2nd, Mm. 2021. Well, it's amazing because we're sitting here next to this beautiful ganache. And I feel like ganache just wanted to be here. I hope he does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he made it possible, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. We did a lot of worship in this space. Mm -hmm. In the last week when we were here in 2015, we did Abhisheka with, um, we did 108 Atatavashirsha Abhishekas Mm -hmm. um, leading up to it. So I think we kind of did a lot of energy cementing in here mm. before we left. And when we moved back in, uh, even though the configuration is different now, you can still feel the same energy is here. It's coming back to life a little bit. It's pretty cool. It's so serene. And we're like in the middle of really busy area of Manhattan and Soho for people who know. And yeah. so when you come in here, it's like you're in another place. You're in, a, in an oasis in that craziness. So. Yeah, that's totally the idea. Like to build a little sanctuary in the middle of the city, like a Hindu sanctuary. Mm. I mean, anyone, of course, can come here, but that's what we really wanted to feel like, that, um, you know, yoga came alive for me in the temples of South India and North India as well, but primarily South India, where every time you would step into a temple, you feel like you're, you've entered into an alternate universe. And I always thought, how amazing would it be to build that kind of a thing in Manhattan? And there are already places like that, I mean, any church or synagogue, or, but there aren't really many Hindu places like that in Manhattan. You have them in Queens, the Flushing Temple, for example. But in Manhattan, they don't really exist, only the Hare Krishna Temple. And that's recent as well. Um, before that, they were only in Brooklyn, too. So that's kind of what we're trying to do, just have a, a real Devalaya, a real resting place of the Devas in Manhattan. And then take care of the devas and serve them and create a, a, a space filled with lightness that mm. people can enter into and feel whatever they need to feel from it. A little respite from the stress of living in New York, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that's the goal, basically. So tell me, you, you grew up in New York, right? Yeah, right? I grew up in Greenwich Village, not far from here. And so your journey in New York has been... <laughs> within Very one different. mile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm curious because a lot of times the first question I ask is about your journey. So your journey to yoga, you were quite young. 
mm-hmm. right? When you were introduced to yoga. So tell me a little bit about that, like that discovery and what you found in yoga that you really connected with and made it, you know, want to make it your path in life. I just felt pretty quickly after I started doing it, that's what I was going to dedicate my life to. I didn't even think about this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to. I just thought this is what I'm going to immerse myself in. I guess I was around 19 or 20 at that time when I thought. And, but the thing is, I already had this idea in me from one of my mentors, a guy named Jim Ryan, that whatever I was doing, I should do it so fully like if there was nothing else I wanted to do. And it, he was basically like, if you had $10,000 a month, and you didn't have to worry about money or anything like that, what would you do to completely dedicate yourself to your art and creativity? And, you know, what would you be creating? I didn't know exactly what that thing was going to be that I would say do for the rest of my life. And I met him when I was 18. So I took that at that point to mean that, okay, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to do it like it's the only thing I want to do. Like this is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So when I, and at that time I was running a t-shirt business and I thought, okay, I'll just put myself so fully in this t-shirt printing and t-shirt design as if it was, there was nothing else on the planet that mattered to me. So I was already doing that with stuff. And when it came to yoga, I felt that was a real thing. It was, I felt it was like, okay, well, I don't have to sort of pretend like, oh, this is the only thing I want to do. It really was the only thing I wanted to do. Mm. So then I just did it. But I didn't feel like I was at a young age because you almost never feel that you're at a young age. And if you start when you're 20, you wish you started when you were 14. Oh, I would have made so much progress already, Mm -hmm. you know, with anything. So I didn't feel that I was getting into it when I was young. I just felt I was, age wasn't a thing that was happening in my mind about it. But am I right? Like you were in a punk rock band. You had like a big mohawk at the time. Earlier than that. Okay. Yeah, earlier than that. (laughs) I was in punk rock bands from the time I was 15 until 17 or 18. And then I stopped having a mohawk and stopped playing punk rock and started playing other things. But but yeah, that was kind of my background. It was a lot of people's background in New York. So I'm also interested because you're so into the science and understanding what's happening. Like when we're breathing, what's happening? You know, and so tell me why you think that's so important and in all of this, like for, is it for people to get verification of why it's working because that's the way our mind works now, or is it just your own fascination or something else? I got into the science stuff accidentally. Um, Someone came and asked me if I would help them with a research study and that's how I embarked on it. You know, yoga is its own science as well. And if you study the yoga text, even though it's not in the language of modern science, it's really complex and it's very subtle and it's very um, definite in the way they talk about things as well. So when you read any Sanskrit text, whether it's Jyotish or yoga, Ayurveda, there's a tremendous amount of information in there that has been thought about, has been tested, has been passed on, has been modified. And we find the same thing in the Western science world as well. People have been thinking about these concepts for a long time. Diabetes was mentioned in texts around the time of Plato. And so these are all old diseases that people have been thinking about and trying to figure out how to cure or how to prevent. And, and modern science has 
an evolved language that's come from over the past several hundred years about how to think, talk, and examine these things. So I'm interested, generally speaking, in examination. I'm interested in examining the texts and understanding them and learning Sanskrit and continuing to learn it. And I'm interested also in the scientific aspects as well, because that's part of the language of the world that we live in or, you know, that I live in here in the West, in New York, in a world where yoga is useful for people who are sick. Understanding how yoga can help them in different types of languages is beneficial all around. So it's good to understand how yoga can help people in the language of yoga and which is Sanskrit primarily, but also other languages too. There's a lot of untranslated texts in Kannada and in Bengali and in Bharati and Gurkha and all sorts of things. And then it's also good to be able to explain things in a scientific language to people who speak that language or who resonate with that language. But at the end of the day, it's just descriptive. It's mm -hmm. just language. There are all different ways of communicating things that can be helpful for people. I guess that's why I'm interested in it. I mean, as yoga practitioners and yoga teachers, we want to try to be helpful. And then you find over the years when people come to you, there are all sorts of different ways that you can be helpful. And maybe some of the ways that I thought I was being helpful earlier by trying to repeat spiritual ideas that I didn't grasp or I hadn't experienced or passing off sort of new agey sentiments and things like that, that perhaps didn't have as much value as I thought that became unsatisfying and frivolous. So I thought, how can I be a little bit more precise in what it is that I'm investigating? Mm -hmm. Precise and deliberate. One area that you've focused on is the breath, and it's so simple and so complex. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about having a relationship to the breath. I mean, you have an app where people can actually watch a ball and like follow their breath, but why is that so important and how does that tie into the science for people who are newer to that? Well, oh, there's a lot of people interested in breathing. Um, and oh, since the past two years, I'd say during COVID, that has become even more pronounced. Mm -hmm. um, the breathwork fields or the worlds of breathwork have really exploded tremendously. The world of pranayama, maybe not as much. I think breathwork has kind of superseded that in the West. But breath is obviously fundamental because it's the thing that keeps us alive and we don't think about it because we're doing it naturally throughout the day. Mm -hmm. But I think the most basic way to look at breathing as an autonomic function as something that maintains us is that when it comes to maintaining our health, we have to think about all the different things that are ruled by the autonomic nervous system and pay attention to those. And the yogis certainly did. So sleep is an autonomic function. We have to make sure we get enough sleep. Digestion is an autonomic function. We have to make sure we eat foods that we can digest and at the right time. Our heart rate is an autonomic function that we want to raise every once in a while through exercise and then relax through relaxation practices. And breathing is another autonomic function that we want to pay attention to for a little while every day because it's going to have effect on, on various systems. So paying attention to the breathing and breathing in deliberate manners is going to help with the efficiency of gas exchange, which keeps us alive in this way that we have nutrients delivered to every cell in our body. It is going to help 
with the nervous system balance, the homeostasis aspect of the nervous system, uh, the ability of our body to restore itself to balance is directly tied into and affected by the way we breathe. The microbiome, particularly in the abdominal region, and the gut-brain connection is going to be modified or influenced through our breathing patterns. So for example, when in a relaxed breath, if we inhale, the belly will come out a little, and when we exhale, the belly will come back in, which is just the movement of the diaphragm pushing down on the abdominal viscera and then rising back up as mm-hmm. we exhale. But there are a lot of people, people who are, have been um, traumatized or people who are stressed out or a variety of reasons where their breathing pattern is reversed, mm-hmm. where when they inhale, their belly comes in, they exhale, their belly goes out. And this is not great for the um, nervous system in the long term because it's a reverse pattern Mm -hmm. and it can keep tension, stress, or trauma locked into our body. And then we feel that expressed through the way we think, the way our emotions are spontaneously rising up, et cetera, et cetera. So simply by restoring that breathing pattern and reversing it. So now your belly is coming out as you inhale and going in as you exhale Mm -hmm. can be a great release for people and have a lot of beneficial changes. So uh, the breath is tied in to all those things. It's tied into sleep. Mm-hmm. It's tied into digestion. It's tied into the nervous system. It's tied into the stress response. It's tied into our emotions. It's tied into trauma. It's tied into the <laughs> gut-brain connection. It's tied into and rules over gas exchange for carrying nutrients to all of our cell, including our brain, where a lot of those nutrients mm-hmm. are going to be going to. So basically, there's, Learn how to breathe. there's not an aspect <laughs> of our physiology and of the mind-body complex, which is not affected and not able to be adjusted or moderated through breathing. Yeah. And it's amazing as a person who's been practicing yoga for 20 years, how I still come back to this work. You know, I still notice if I'm on the computer for a long period of time that I'm like gripping and I'm not breathing down into my belly and I have to think about it, you know? So it's, it's something that for me, it brings me back to the moment. Always. It's a powerful practice. Yeah, the breathing can't help but bring us back to the moment because if we just focus on one breath, then we are not allowed to be in the past and we can't be projecting into the future because we're just focusing on that thing that's happening like in that moment. I've, I heard so, you yeah. say once also on another podcast. No, I never said that. <laughs> you were talking about how the yogis count their life and breaths instead of years, you know, and that puts that emphasis on the breath and and how important it is. Um, That's something that is very much part of the yoga tradition, this idea that uh, you measure your life in breaths Mm -hmm. and that we breathe 15 to 18 times per minute. Of course, when we're younger, we breathe more. When we get older, we breathe a little less. So it's a a guesstimate, basically, Mm -hmm. through teenage years, maybe till just before old age. That's going to be roughly the breathing pattern. And that equals about 21,600 times per day over the course of your life. If you live for, you know, 80 to 100 years in the area of 600 million breaths. <laughs> and so what they say is that by slowing your breath, you are using up less of the allotted breathing that mm. you're given. So if you're given 100 years of life, when you start, you can waste that life by poor lifestyle choices, or you can live to that capacity by really good lifestyle choices. And one of those lifestyle choices is slow breathing. 
One of the other things which is said is that our breath is kind of like a bank account. If you're given a bank account, you have 600 million breaths in it when you're born. If you spend that breath more quickly than you should be, you're going to use up that bank account more quickly. But if you have these 21,600 breaths a day, you only use up 18,000 of them each day. Then you have 3,600 that you can keep in the bank, and that's your savings. And so that savings leads towards life extension. Mm. Now, I don't know how accurate this entire thing is. I think people have been testing it out, the yogis, for a long time, and I'm sure a lot of them have, have made this work. But there are going to be times in your life where you do start breathing faster. Um, so who knows when you dip into that bank account or not. But generally speaking, the idea is nice. Mm -hmm. So we can take the idea and just think about that idea and go, okay, you know, usually if I slow down, and I'm not saying to myself, oh, I don't have time for this, or, you know, I'm on a deadline, or time is running out, or there's no time for this, that, or the other, mm -hmm. then eventually we'll be right, and there will be no time. But if we take things a little bit more slowly, and we allow to feel spaciousness around us and give ourselves time to get things done and to do the things we want to do, and even in times of stress, if we feel, okay, I'm feeling stressed, but, you know, I don't have to let it overtake me mm. and feel like if I don't get this thing done on time or sent on time that my life is going to end, but just allow the stress to be there. Then a different thing happens with time with us. We begin to perceive it differently. We operate differently within it. We don't get as much stress and we don't use up as much of our allotted time because mm -hmm. we're allowing it to be expansive. So I think that's one thing you do see in the yoga texts a lot, the idea of expansiveness. We need to apply that to our sense of time as well, especially in an age where we're always on our phones or there's so much to do and there's so much to keep up with, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that there's really so much more information in the world now than there was when I was growing up. It's just that it's easier to get to it. You know, if you went to a library in the 1970s, that library was still filled with hundreds of thousands of books that you were never going to have time to read. And now those hundreds of thousands are of books are searchable and they're on our phones and on our computers. So we feel overwhelmed by information at our fingertips. But a lot of that information also was there for us to be overwhelmed with 30 years ago. I mean, yes, there are more people on the planet, too. So, of course, there's more information being produced all the time. But that doesn't mean that that information is necessarily useful for us. Mm. So the feeling that we have of being overwhelmed and of having to stay on top of things all the time, is what we would call a misperception, or what Patanjali would call a misperception in yoga. We have a right perception or an accurate way of perceiving the situations, events, and presence in front of us. And then we have a way of misperceiving it. And to misperceive something is to think that something is there which is not there, and to think that something exists which does not exist in front of you, to take something to be real which isn't real. That idea of I can stay on top of all the information flows that are coming my way is a misperception. There's no way we can do that. There's no way we could ever do that. It didn't ever exist in history. It's just now we have more access, and that's all. So I think that breathing is, is part of that slowing down process mm -hmm. because it's training our nervous system to be more present with the information that we have inside of us that we need to function. We don't really need all of the news feeds to live our lives, what we need is we need to be really deeply in tune with ourselves mm -hmm. and to understand, am I hungry? 
Am I tired? Am I getting angry? Am I losing my patience? Can I be a little bit nicer right now? Should I get this thing done now or get the other thing done now? And what that is, is the faculty of discernment, the decision-making faculty we have inside of ourselves, which according to yoga is also the level of perfect health, where there's no disturbance in the mind or the pranic field. So the breathing is going to help to slow down the speed of the mind. When the speed of the mind slows, then we can be more in touch with the faculty of discernment. And then we have that information access within ourselves to decide, how should I be living in this moment? That's also a very important thing about breathing. Uh, it's, the, it's the fulcrum by which we swing mm-hmm. inwards. It's really interesting because as you're talking, I'm hearing you know this idea of like expanding time is really fascinating to me. It's like, how do we create more space and live our life against what's going on around us, basically be those salmon swimming upstream. Yeah, totally. And so I was thinking you and I both study with Shantala. So there's like this love of, of chanting mantras and things like that. Um, yoga is like another way you can kind of expand time because you always feel a little bit like you just entered a vortex in some way when you're doing these practices. So I don't know if you want to, I don't know, talk a little bit about mantra, for example, and how that plays in with breath? Well, you can't chant mantras without breathing. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. And as you get into more and more complicated mantras, you have to breathe longer, especially your exhale. And it's quite interesting because in the pranayama traditions of India, especially if you look into Krishnamacharya and Tiwari and people like that, they put a lot more focus on the exhalation than they do on the inhalation. Mm-hmm. The inhalation is relaxed and can be a little quicker, but the exhalation be, should be long and smooth and fine and controlled. And so you definitely need breath control to chant mantra. That's for sure. It's a, it's a type of pranayama. Yeah. Krishnamacharya used to, according to uh, the books about him, when he would teach children, he would have them chant things while they were in poses because that would teach them how to breathe. And young kids have a little harder time figuring out the inhale and exhale. Mm-hmm. But if they're singing something, then automatically they're exhaling. So that teaches them how to breathe. So I'm curious how you feel about the way yoga is now since you've been involved in yoga for so long, like where yoga has gone in the West or how people are perceiving it and maybe what is yoga? You know, what is the real yoga? Well, I have no idea what the real yoga is. I think a lot of what real yoga would be would you know, as A.G. Mohan said, the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. If you're doing some practice and it is giving you chitta vritti nirodaha or mastery over your mind that leads to you dwelling in your true nature, then you're probably doing some pretty real yoga. And, you know, I look around and I look at myself and I look at the people I know who have been doing yoga a long time. And I would say that probably none of us are really getting to that level. We're getting to really low level, low volume (laughs) um, practices. Maybe we get little bits and pieces of mental quietude and some inner certainty about things. But um, for the most part, most of the people who I know who are teaching and practicing were pretty surface level. You know, we're, we're getting by, we have our schools that we're running and 
we need to make a living and we have families to take care of and you know we're exploring practices still and we're doing things like podcasts and we're spending time on Instagram Instagram <laughs> and on other social media platforms and sending out newsletters and paying the bills and cooking food and so you know we're we're just I think basically and I don't really want to speak for other people but if I was to make a generalization we're just trying to live more conscious lives mm-hmm. I think that's really what we're doing stage one and then maybe later on or maybe for some people there there might be some real deep practices occurring but generally speaking I think the yoga movement is trying to live more conscious life for itself and then there are things that come up and you know things diversions and wrong practices and things that occur so and even krishna says in the gita that among thousands of people perhaps one strives for a spiritual awakening and uh, of those thousands seeking perhaps one or a few have some knowledge and of those who have some knowledge perhaps one knows krishna in reality <laughs> So the numbers are slim. You know, it's a rate of diminishing return. I think for the most of us, to live more conscious, kind lives would be a good step. Mm-hmm. And for those who are the real deep practitioners, they will serve mm-hmm. as inspirations for the rest of us. And maybe we'll all, little by little, travel in that direction. State of yoga in America is going to be very, it's going to be widely varied. The most visible aspects of it, as with all things, the most visible aspects will be the most commercial mm-hmm. and the most unpalatable. But then you have small pockets all through the country of people practicing in tiny yoga schools or at the YMCA or in their homes who are doing really dedicated, quiet, simple, inward focused practices and getting a lot of benefit from it. Not flashy. So <laughs> the yoga industry mm-hmm. as a whole is very unpalatable to me. The yoga industry as a whole is primarily responsible for the misrepresentation of yoga in the West. And these are the Lululemons and the Aloe Yoga and the yoga journals of the world or of America who have spent a lot of money on branding and on PR and on marketing to present an image of yoga which is largely white largely affluent and largely able-bodied this is what they've done there's no arguing against that they are not the entirety of the representation of yoga there's a lot going on which is hidden and if we look for those hidden things then you'll be less discouraged mm-hmm. by what's happening in the landscape but if that's all you see it might be a big turnoff and i know a lot of people who that's all they see mm-hmm. and they're very turned off by it and i don't blame them my friends who ran the wanderlust festival which was a very big successful festival they knew what their demographic was and their demographic was like you know 23 to 35 or in that rough age range with income of 75 to 100,000 and they were 80% women and probably you know 94% white and that was their cash cow that particular demographic became the face of a spiritual practice mm-hmm. then became pretty much um, a glorified exercise regime but that happens you know that's the nature of our country so it's something that we have to try to correct little by little and not get too bent out of shape over no pun intended but it's uh, i think it's a reality that i think i'm very happy to speak about 
because it's just true. And I've been watching it since the 1980s when that did not exist. Mm -hmm. It just didn't exist in the 1980s. There was no yoga industry. You could only buy a yoga mat from California. But we didn't even need them. We were practicing on towels. What yeah. do you need this piece of green rubber, which is flaking little specks everywhere? You know, they're just <laughs> messy. So an industry developed. The industry has certainly introduced a lot of people to yoga. But at the same time, it's given a very big impression, very wrong impression about what this is to a lot of people as well. I don't really think that the yoga industry has been helpful even for getting yoga into things like healthcare or into education or anything like that. Yeah. The people who have been useful for that have been the people who are either already in education or already in healthcare who did some yoga in simple places and saw that it, it was useful mm -hmm. and then began moving forward with that. So it makes it harder to find an authentic version. You have to kind of dig through to find something more authentic? The word authentic is really tricky. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I don't think I'm particularly authentic. You know, I'm just doing yoga. Maybe just like, okay, if authentic means to be simple and clear and no frills and based for the most part on tradition or practices that have been handed down and tested, then yeah, I'm okay with that. But it's a tricky word. What's yeah. authentic, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, you wrote a book called One Simple Thing. I certainly did. <laughs> what is the one simple thing? One Tell simple us. thing is yoga. Uh huh. That's all. Yeah. And yoga is like pretty multifaceted, right? You mm -hmm. have lots of different types. You have Shivananda yoga, Iyengar yoga, mm -hmm. hot yoga, Ashtanga yoga, <laughs> Vini yoga, Yin yoga, Mantra yoga. Karma yoga, jnana yoga, yeah. raja yoga, <laughs> laya yoga, kundalini yoga, yoga nidra, <laughs> yoga nidra. You have lots of different types of yogas and people go do them. And for the most part, they feel better after they've done them. So there's some connecting thing within all the different yoga systems that call themselves yoga that are somehow similar mm -hmm. because the effect on people is very similar feel calmer. I'm healthier. I'm making changes in my life. I'm sleeping better. I'm devoting myself to the things that matter. I'm slowing down. I'm listening better. I'm getting spiritual insights. I'm becoming like I feel more conscious about the world and myself in it and my connection to it. All these things occur no matter like what kind of yoga you're doing. I can't speak for the yogas I haven't really done like goat yoga or <laughs> hot naked yoga, or I've done one core power yoga class. I struggled to find the yoga in that class, but people apparently like it. It's quite popular. <laughs> so again, the proof is in the pudding. Like if you come out from one of those things and you feel better and have any of those effects and something is working and working in a different way than an exercise classes. But the thing that I think is underlying or built into all those practices is a balancing and quieting effect on the nervous system. I think all of these yogas, probably through the breathing and most likely through breathing and moving at the same time, and most definitely moving, breathing and focusing your awareness all at the same time, is having a strong effect on the nervous system of quieting it, 
moving our awareness inward so that things that are happening inside of us become apparent mm. in the field of mind where we're usually just thinking about stuff and planning for the future and having memory. But then this other thing is shining into the mind about who am I? What's my purpose? What am I doing here? You know, how can I live a better life? Those things start to come up when the thinking part of the mind gets quiet. And I think all the yoga systems, for the most part, are doing that or leading us in that direction, leading us in that direction. So that's why I called book one simple thing. It wasn't a book about Ashtanga yoga, mm -hmm. uh, which I studied for about 19 or 20 years in India and, um, you know, back and forth, of course, and practiced for about 30 years or so. But Ashtanga yoga is just a methodology. That's all. It's and it's not a better methodology than any other kind of practice that I've seen. It's just one that I kind of liked. So I did it. But I didn't want to write a book about Ashtanga yoga. I wanted to write a book about how I thought maybe yoga worked, generally speaking. If I could reach out of my circle that I was existing in, that maybe more interesting conversations would arise and different opportunities to participate in the world of yoga and health and consciousness would arise from that. And that's really what I want to do. You know, I like these things and I'd like to participate in a world where conversations and research is moving forward and expanding our, our visions, which can often become very close minded, mm -hmm. especially within groups where you start thinking my group is the best group because I'm in it, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the only reason why you think it's the best group. Not because it is the best group, but because you happen to be in it. And so all that thinking can make us rigid and closed-minded and sectarian. And, and that can lead to a lot of other problems as well. Mm -hmm. Problems of abuse in all different types of ways mm -hmm. and um, the problems of, you know, closing yourself off to other types of possibility or conversations. So, so that's kind of why I wrote the book and what I was thinking about when I wrote it. So I'm also interested in, you know, so many people... I work for Dr. Sabota. My, my podcast listeners know this and you know this. Um, but most people who write ask, you know, ask him either to be their guru or to find, help them find a guru or why haven't they found a guru? So we hear this a lot, like people longing for someone to tell them what to do. So I was wondering if you talk about the value of that and also what happens when the guru disappoints us. And yeah. What do we do with that? And is it even the point? When? Okay. So. <laughs> I mean, it's a massive topic, but uh, I'd say if people are looking for someone to tell them what to do, I have one thing to tell people to do, which is when you get up in the morning, first thing you should do is make your bed, make it really well. Even if your wife or husband is still asleep on the other side, <laughs> that will position you for the day ahead for positive living and uh, to set your day up. That's my only piece of advice. <laughs> the guru tradition is part of India's cultural and religious heritage. It is something that Indians understand in a way that I don't think Western people will ever understand. And I know that with the amazing books like Autobiography of a Yogi and Be Here Now and many of these books that were coming out, there's a whole slew of them. There's Theos Bernard and a lot of people from the 1940s, 50s and 60s writing books about their experiences in India and the importance of the guru set off a huge wave of people in the 1960s and 70s and 80s really wanting a guru and going to India to find one. I also like really wanted to find a guru as well and <laughs> had this idea in us that 
we needed one, we had to find one. And that was the most important thing because that's what we were reading. Otherwise, we had no other way of knowing that. So, um, but for a lot of people, because we had cultural misunderstandings, it led, and this is not for everyone, but for a lot of people, it led to not understanding how to treat the person who was in the guru role, how to interact or behave around them, the limits of, well, superimposition, a lot of people with difficult family relationships superimposing things on the guru, either mother or father type architects that really didn't belong there, but belonged belonged in their own psychological journey to sort out, Mm -hmm. but that the guru was giving a different type of instruction that maybe had nothing to do with all of those interpersonal relationships that we quite often were transposing on the person in that position. I don't really know what to say all that much because it is such a big topic. I do say often that I'm not convinced that the guru tradition is going to work in America, especially because Americans are pretty strong-minded and they like to control situations and relationships and have a lot of expectations about stuff. And America is largely a hedonistic society. The idea of I can do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, is built into sort of the fabric of this country. And that's not freedom. That is hedonism. That is, you know, the American go get em attitude is very much. And it's, of course, it's had a lot of benefits and it's nice to live here. So when it comes to surrender, that idea is like, we don't quite get it, you know, what it means to surrender to, to a teacher and what it is exactly you're surrendering. Like you need to know what part of you you're surrendering before you can actually do that. It's not all of your agency, yeah. you know, and that is often what happens. Like we think, and this was my experience as well, like, oh, to surrender means to give up all sense of agency and everything is the guru's will and everything happens at the will of the group. Maybe it does. I have no idea. But it, it also leads to lots of interpersonal problems and, again, problems of power and abuse. I am thrilled to share with you an opportunity to get a hold of my handpicked lay low dates for 2022, as well as success dates to help you with launches, with signing contracts, with making big decisions in your business. If you would like that, it's called the 2022 Astrology Guidebook, and it's at my website, weaveyourbliss.com. You'll see it right at the top in the red bar. So get a hold of it. It's $33 and 100% of profits go to an Indigenous-led environmental organization. So I hope that's a huge help for you. Also, there's a link where you can drop it directly into your Google Calendar, meaning it's all there for you. You don't have to do anything and you can plan around those dates. So I hope that's helpful to you. No, I'm curious, though, if you think this will continue on in India and maybe it just won't be the way that people find what they need in the West or something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm uh, I'm probably a little out of the loop with a lot of this stuff at this point. I think that the guru tradition in India is a very important tradition. I'm not against it at all. 
I think it is the reason why yoga has survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cannot separate yoga out from the guru tradition in India. That's how it's been passed down from guru to disciple. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, a guru, it just simply means a teacher for many people. You can call any of your teachers guruji. And then there's also these other ideas of guru where the guru is very, you know, is either Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, or is an exalted figure or an enlightened being, or the guru isn't the body at all. The guru is just a stream of knowledge flowing through a particular person. That's a very good way of having a relationship with a person who carries knowledge. Mm-hmm. Go that the guru is not the body, but the guru is this knowledge stream, which is eternal according to the Vedas and flows through people who are able to open up or perceive it. And then by listening to them, serving them, spending time around them, you're entering into their karmic stream of knowledge and that will transform you. This is a very good way of going about the whole guru tradition. And then whatever flaws or problems the person might have as a personality who has incarnated, you might not get involved with those things. You might not encourage or support those things. And if you see them occurring, you might go in a different direction. So when I first went to India in 1988, a guy named Lex Hickson, who was a great spiritual teacher here in New York, he lived in Riverdale, gave me a book that he'd written called Coming Home. And in it, he said, go to all the Ramakrishna centers you can and go to the Kopan Monastery and go here and there. Take as many initiations as you can and enter into those karmic streams. Mm. And that has always stayed with me. Like that, When we are spending time around these teachers or exalted beings, that we're entering into their karmic stream. Whatever knowledge or blessings come with that is going to become a part of us. And by doing the practices that they teach or repeating the mantras, we stay in that stream. This is largely how I think about it and Mm -hmm. have thought about it. And I got sidetracked over the years with other things, but I largely think about it this way. You know, stay in that karmic stream. Why? Because whatever karmic stream we're in is going to determine what the stream looks like further down the road for us, according to the theory of karma. Mm -hmm. So don't get in a stream which is too rough or your (laughs) boat's going to smack against the rocks. which happens. So um, anyway, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. What, did you ask a question? Did I just talk without answering the question? You know, because I just, there's so many gurus that's come to light that so many of them have had bad behaviors in different ways. And we've been in this kind of reckoning period for social justice and different things coming to light. And so I don't know if you have any words for people who are trying to find ground in that or having experiences like that. And you know, you and I have talked about social justice. So if you want to talk about the role that that plays and the activism plays in yoga as well. I don't see myself personally as much of an activist. The world has always been a difficult place and has always been a hard place for human beings as long as there have been human beings. And I think that there are a lot of people who have dedicated their lives to social change. These are amazing individuals, small and large, who have fought for social change. And I think that's um, a very noble service to provide to the world, probably the highest service. There's another stream of thought that says the world is what it is. It's always going to be a mix of good and bad. And that balance is never really going to change. This is one of the Hindu perspectives. Mm -hmm. Try not to contribute to the badness part of it. 
try to support the goodness simply to maintain balance, mm -hmm. but not because it's one day all going to always be good. Actually, the arc is going to tend towards getting worse, according to the teachings that discuss Kali Yuga, mm -hmm. which either we're in now or we will soon be in, depending on whose calendar you follow. Or we're in stage one or two. <laughs> exactly. One way or the other. So if you look to people like Ramana Maharshi, he didn't really try to change the world at all. He just gave some basic things that were very challenging practices. Who am I? Just focus on that. And don't try to do anything to the world. You know, the world is what it is. There are a lot of teachers like that in India. Mm -hmm. You know, Nisargadatta was one of them as well. They weren't advocating for you trying to make the world a better place. They were advocating for you to understand you. So this is one approach. And then there's another approach, which is the try to make the world a better place. That's a good thing to do too. But if you don't happen to make it a better place, then don't get too upset about it, you know, and don't get cynical and don't get jaded and don't feel like a failure. Just know that maybe there's only so much we can do because the balance of the world is going to be both good and bad. And it always has been. Just like the balance of our nervous system is sympathetic and parasympathetic. It's not always in parasympathetic state where it's all rest and digestion and assimilation and healing. It Sometimes we need sympathetic, you know, for energy, for activity, for inhaling a breath, mm -hmm. for running away from danger. So, but that balance isn't always acknowledged in the world where we're always trying to make things a better place. And then people get demonized who are not better. And then we continue to keep a separation between what we think is good and what we think is bad. There's certain bad things that need to be fought against. Nazism, white supremacy, racism in any form, misogyny, homophobia, killing animals, uh, the industrial food complex, big pharma, all these things, mm -hmm. these are worthy adversaries and they should be taken on because they have so much more power, power of hatred, the power of anger, the power of violence, self-righteousness, mm -hmm. um, superiority. Those are really strong powers. And so to practice kindness, compassion, friendliness, but most importantly towards those folks, equanimity of mind, mm -hmm. that's challenging. And in Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says that for those who are apunya, so punya are those who are doing good things in the world, and apunya are those who are doing either evil things or bad things or harmful things, any of the categories or groups that I mentioned previously, these are all apunya. And he doesn't say practice compassion towards them. He says practice upeksha towards them, which is equanimity of mind, equilibrium. We have to maintain our equilibrium and that's the only way that we can do anything about injustice. But if we get righteously indignant and our anger gets the best of us, then it's going to be harder to affect change or integration. Or Because one thing that balance likes is that if one thing is not too much and the other thing is not too much, but everything is moving towards a center point where we can yeah. all kind of get along a little bit. So balance is allowed to swing back and forth until maybe things start to naturally come towards an equilibrium. There's not too much good, there's not too much bad, but the bad is not raging bad. 
and the good is not raging do-gooders, you know, who mm. think that they're better than everyone. But in an idealist perception, we want the do-gooders to win and the evil to be completely abolished. But what if the evil won't ever be completely abolished? Then how do you look at it? What if actually everyone's point of view can be toned down a little bit? Mm-hmm. You know, what if we turn down the dial on everybody a little bit mm-hmm. and everybody just became a little calmer? Then maybe the excessive views wouldn't be so pronounced, anyone's excessive views. So I'm a fan of that point of view. Well, it seems to me like when you're talking, I'm thinking of the devas and the asuras, mm-hmm. you know, and with the two great epics of India, you know, specifically the Ramayana, there's this need for that rakshasa presence to bring out the karma of the story, you know? And so that's kind of what I feel like is happening in our world right now. We have this energy of the rakshasa to bring stuff to light that had been subsumed by all the other stuff our culture had lumped on top of it. And no one was listening to the voices that are now being heard. And now we'll see what happens, but that, that energy had to bring forth. It's like that we had to put a magnifying glass on it a little bit more to see, you know, what was going on underneath. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I think that'll be really valuable for people to hear because I know for myself, I was an activist in my twenties, food activism, like, you know, helping with food justice and writing journalism. And I was very active in trying to make change and I burnt myself out and I ended up just completely like stopping everything and just looking at myself, just like you said, and trying to be the change myself, starting with me. And I found my life has become so much more harmonious. And I've gotten a lot more, I've had a lot more impact from that place. So it's powerful. Yeah, it's hard. It takes a lot of, a lot of inner work. It's easier to be an angry activist. And it's harder to be um, an effective equanimous, you know, mm-hmm. or equanimous activist. But it all comes, I think, with age and practice and making mistakes and making changes and growing and stuff like that. Plus, as we get older, we get more tired. We don't have the same energy to be angry all the time about stuff. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Um, So another thing that really strikes me about you is you have such a good relationship with social media. It looks like like you put stuff out there that's really helpful for people and you're always sharing stories and insights and talks with people. So can you talk a little bit about having a good relationship to social media? And like, what does that even look like or mean? Sure. Uh, First of all, thanks for the kind words on it. Um, uh, I have a friend who has a lot of followers on social media. And I said to him, you know, how did you do this? Because I wanted to get a lot of followers also. And I thought, well, well, you know, ask people who have a lot of them. And I said, well, how did you do this? And he said, well, you know, there's different ways of going about it. But what I think you should do is anytime before you post something, think to yourself, is this helpful? Mm-hmm. Is this going to be helpful for people? How can it be helpful? And if it doesn't feel like it's going to be helpful and it's just kind of self-serving or whatever, don't post it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I started doing. And I started enjoying using social media more because number one, I do it less. Mm-hmm. because I have to make sure it's really helpful. <laughs> and and if I put something up and I don't see response coming to it quickly, I'll think, oh, you know, this isn't so useful and I'll take it down mm-hmm. or I'll archive it. So I don't leave frivolous things up there. 
Um, and the only social media I use is Instagram. Okay. I just simply don't have time for anything else. And, um, I would like to use Twitter more, but I don't have time to keep up with it or even remember to post on it. So, so I kind of like Instagram. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of problems with all this stuff. I've made a lot of really good friends through Instagram. Mm -hmm. Me too. Had some really fun collaborations with the people I've met. So it's been an enjoyable world for me. I mean, I've been on it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. I started in 2012 when it was in its nascent days, you know, or nascent, no, it was in the beginning days. And um, my friend Stacy Bendette told me about it because someone who worked for her, her boyfriend had invented it. So I got on it pretty quickly and I haven't posted a whole lot over those years. So let's see, in 10 years, I'm just going to open up the app now. In 10 years, I have posted 379 times. So do you get caught in the scroll? Do you ever? No. You never do have, that. I don't have time. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't, I don't have time. So you don't look at your newsfeed? A new, is that news on Instagram? No, it's just. Like stuff. when you open it and you, you see I photos. I a little. I do okay. the first few. And, uh, but I won't spend an hour looking through things. I'll just, um, I mean, I've archived probably a hundred things. So maybe I've posted 500 times mm -hmm. in 10 years. So that's, if we did some math, that would be not a lot. Mm -hmm. So what so, would be your advice for people? Cause we live on this stuff now. Mm -hmm. Right. And so a lot of people who listen to my podcast are also online business owners and they're trying to figure out how to work as a spiritual entrepreneur and use these tools. So what would you say? Like, what would be the yogic <laughs> advice that you would give to people? Oh, uh, I have the perfect advice. Okay. It's from Groucho Marx. <laughs> and he said, take my advice. I'm not using it. That's a joke. Uh, that one fell flat here on the um, <laughs> podcast of Paula Crossfield. If you have something to share with the world and you think it's going to be useful for people, then like just share it in, in whatever constructive way you think you can. I'm not a very good business person. Um, I like business stuff, um, but I'm not terribly good at it because I have too many things going on at any given time. So like we have a beautiful temple here, mm -hmm. like the folks who are on the podcast, have can't, they can't see it, of course, but it's 1800 square feet. I spent a couple of weeks painting the floors. It's They're beautiful. White. They're... It's open. There are deities, you know, everywhere, but it's not overcrowded. So you come in here and there's a feeling of space mm -hmm. and openness and calm and quiet. I don't have a sign on the front door. Uh, there's nobody would know that we're here unless somehow you happen to find our website or know me and even my or website the Instagram feed. Up, or the Instagram feed. But those most are, are, are mostly people that, you know, and even in there, it's like my address is not on my page anywhere. It doesn't say come to the Broom Street Temple at 430 Broom Street, like all these simple things of infrastructure. I don't pay attention to mm -hmm. I should be. And if I did, we'd probably be more successful than we are. So, but I've never really paid a lot of attention to those things. So on the business side of things, I'm not a good person to ask. There's something about developing magnetism through these practices and just simply being and showing another example and being helpful that draws people in. That's what I'm saying. I ha look, I have no idea because if I, if I look at myself in comparison to some of my colleagues, they have much bigger Instagram followings than I do, like exponentially bigger. 
I just don't spend a lot of time doing it. I think if I spent more time doing it and I made it one of my things, then probably I could grow it. Or if but you just I, added I, calls I, to action. <laughs> I have I have friends who like this guy here, Francesco Clemente, is a beautiful book right here. Julian Schnabel is I have tons of his books here, and this big Ganesha is donated to the temple by him. They're some of the most important artists of the contemporary art world. And if you look at their Instagrams, a few thousand followers, you know, mm -hmm. maybe less than 10 or 12 or something. I'm not too sure, but not a lot. And these guys are so, look at the amount of work that they produce. It's phenomenal. They're such good artists and deep thinkers and so important to culture. But they spend their time in the art studio producing work rather than spending their time on social media gathering followings. I think I spend more of my time in here teaching and practicing and doing worship than I do trying to grow a business. So the business kind of grows around that. I don't think I'm, I've been a very effective business person. And I, I honestly wish that I devoted more time to it because I like things to grow, you know, it's fun to, it's fun to expand in that way, but I just don't, you know, I have other stuff to do. I'm, I'm in school right now and I have classes studying? to teach. I'm doing a master's through Espiasa, which is a yoga university in South India. Mm. And they've opened a branch of their university in California called the Vivekananda Yoga University. And they're on their way to accreditation as a undergraduate degree in America. In India, Svyasa is a university for bachelor's, master's, PhD. They have a lot of medical programs. They produce a lot of research. They're very involved in Ayush and other Indian yoga, Ayurveda, medical programming. Um, great teachers, wonderful programs. So I'm in my second semester. Second semester ends in May, actually. We have finals first week of May. And then I have another year of school for the master's. So I'm doing that. That's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, you know, I have writing that I do and teaching for about four hours or five hours a day, you know, the temple to take care of and the websites to run and, mm -hmm. and all this stuff. So, so it's pretty busy. And um, I focus a little bit more on that. But I'd like to have more time. You know, now we go back to our time thing. I say I'd like to have more time for the other stuff. Maybe I don't really want more time because I'm not making it. Right. You know, I would, if, if I have the choice between making more Instagram videos or experimenting with new practices that I can teach, I'll probably experiment with new practices mm -hmm. rather than, and then maybe later on it will end up as Instagram video. My favorite things that I did were when I had COVID and I posted the practices that I was doing while I had COVID. I felt that was useful. I felt that was a good use of a, of a public space. Mm -hmm. So tell me what, you know, the theme of this podcast is living in your purpose. Okay. What does that mean to you? And like, what would you say to someone who's trying to crack that nut? All right. I don't know what my purpose is, but I think that I try to live a purposeful life. Mm -hmm. So I look at the purposing as not being a noun, but being a verb. Mm -hmm. I would like to live a purposeful life. I'd like to create things that I enjoy creating, that are aesthetically pleasing, that are beautiful, that are inspiring, that make you happy or make you peaceful. So I like creating stuff. I find that when I'm creating things that are helpful for people in any direction, whether it's through science or 
through art or through yoga, then that is purposeful. So that's how I think about it. But do I know my, like, do I have one purpose? I don't think I have one purpose. Some people probably do. And that's awesome. And I think about this a lot also, like, what is my purpose? The who am I question? What am I doing here? I let it be a little bit more fluid, mm-hmm. you know, because it's going to change depending on time, place and circumstance. But to be purposeful, that resonates with me. In Yoga Sutra, which of course is a text I come back to a lot, to be purposeful is to follow along with Yama and Niyama, our, our social interactions and our personal interactions with spiritual practice. This is to be deliberate mm-hmm. about how we engage with the world and how we engage with ourselves. So there's um, an aspect of being deliberate, which is part of being purposeful as well. Those two go hand in hand. So that's kind of where I gravitate towards in that thought system. I like that answer. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I get to hear everyone's answer, which is really fun. Yeah, I'm sure. I love how people think about this question. So I have a few rapid fires for you. Do it. (laughs) The first one is what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? The one piece of advice that really helped me in my life was when I was about 15 or 16 and I was buying hairspray in a <laughs> shop on Broadway for my mohawk. And the woman next to me asked me where the six train was. And I gave her a really complicated answer. And in the midst of this, con- and the six train wasn't far away from where we were. And she said to me, tell me the end of your sentence first. <laughs> and I said, it's on the corner of Lafayette and Spring Street. And she said, great. And now how do I get there? And I said, walk three blocks up to Spring Street, take a right, walk two blocks and you're there. And then I said to her, how did you do that? It was like, amazing. You just gave me instant clarity. And she said, well, I'm a linguist. And so I help people with language and how to express themselves. That was very helpful. Like, tell me the end of the sentence first. Tell me where I'm going and then tell me how I'm going to get there. So I think as a teacher, that's a very useful piece of advice. I love that. And so that's one. And then another was from my ninth grade, my 10th grade English teacher, Mrs. Jane Benditson, who after she'd given us Siddhartha to read as our first book of the year, and after she had made us write an essay on um, the unexamined life, she said the three most important questions you can ask yourself are, who am I, what am I doing here, and what do I do next? And I've held on to that like a life raft mm. since 10th grade. I love that. So when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself? Yeah, I never feel any of those things. <laughs> Um, what's the first thing I do to ground myself? Well, usually I have to be in it for a moment to really recognize that I'm feeling one of those things. Mm -hmm. So I think this first step is to like be in it, like feel the anxiety, feel the stress, identify what it is first Mm -hmm. before you try to do anything about it. And sometimes just by feeling that I'm stressed out, feeling what that feels like, like feeling it in your body, for example, is really the first thing to do. You know, you hear the acronym STOP a lot. This is something that um, Deepak Chopra and other people use. And STOP is S literally for stop. Don't do anything. And then T is for take a few breaths. And then O is for observe what you're feeling in your body. And then P is to proceed with a plan Mm -hmm. to know which direction. That's a pretty good one. But I definitely think the first step in knowing what to do about anxiety or feeling anxious or stressed out is to feel it because it's just an energy. Mm-hmm. And when you feel it, it dissipates. And then you can say, is this a misperception? 
about a situation? Is it a right perception that I need to act on somehow? And you'll, you know, you get your tools, of course, mm-hmm. in your life about what you're going to apply right then and there. So that's what I would say for that. Okay. What's your favorite hot beverage? My favorite hot beverage depends on the season. What is it right now? What is it right now? Cortado. Oh, nice. That's my favorite too. Boom. Yeah. Saturdays, right down the street. I'll take you for coffee when we're done. I don't use real milk though. What That's fine. They have a lot of fake milks. Okay. <laughs> they have, they, they can, they can milk your favorite fresh oats. Uh-huh. <laughs> they can milk some rice for you. They can do anything. Um, what would your last meal on earth be? I don't know. Peanut butter and jelly on toast. <laughs> like sourdough and like fresh ground peanut butter. No, I'd say <laughs> probably the Melba thin white toast. You know, if I don't have to live any longer, I might as well eat some white bread. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> There's two camps. There's like, what do I eat when I'm going out? And I know it's not a big deal. So I'm going to have the thing. And yeah. then there's like the, you know, more sattvic people who are like, I'll have some pitchery, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But the thing is, is like Krishna says, your last thought mm-hmm. is going to determine your next incarnation. Yes. So better to satisfy all your desires. So there are no lingering desires. And then you can just immerse yourself in Krishna when you pass away. I know. I think mine would be like something which is like not quite satisfying. And you're like, maybe I should add a Snickers. Uh-huh. Bar. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I would have like the best chocolate cake. And then I'm like, Oh, rom, rom. <laughs> exactly. Totally. <laughs> you know, because there's this other idea, which is at, they speak about this a lot in the university I'm attending that, you can sense samadhi in the experience of something very pleasurable where all desires fall away because you're completely in the moment of that experience. Mm. So it's not a true samadhi, but it's a, a sense of it where there's no other fluctuation. There's only the momentary suspension of all other fluctuations mm-hmm. because you, you're fully immersed in that one experience of bliss or joy from a chocolate cake, for example. Yeah. Or an orgasm or, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's why people like that stuff. (laughs) There's some bliss in there. Yeah, there could be. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So tell us about a person who inspires you and why. I am inspired by a lot of people, but I'm going to lean towards the worlds of music and art for my primary inspirations. And so I'm going to pick David Bowie in this particular moment because he was fearless in his ability to continually not recreate himself, but present a new side of himself that was fully creative and gave a whole other experience of music, of sound, of art, of enjoyment, of engagement. And I really like that. I like his his freedom to be an artist and to continually evolve and to know that he was the person and the character was the creation. Mm-hmm. The music was the creation. Um, but he was the person, you know. So he was always kind of the observer and the watcher who then created new things that took on a lot of different forms. But was, you know, he was always himself. But everyone thought that he was the Thin White Duke or thought that he was Ziggy Stardust. Not everyone, but, you know, for the most part. You know, thought that he was the, those different characters. But really, it was just the creative process. So I like that. Plus, I like his music. You know, for spiritual teachers in India, I don't, there's no spiritual teacher in India who I look at who I think like, I want to emulate that person or I want to bring that thing into my life. It's, they're more like, you know, whether it's Ramakrishna 
or Nisargadatta or Nandamaima or simple sadhus that you meet in caves. These are aspirational type figures for me mm-hmm. that represent, again, this, this stream of knowledge and this stream of devotion that I'd like to enter into. So, so I become transformed into that thought system. So I become part of that thought system, but that's different to me than inspirational because you asked inspirational, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just, who, Ins- who's inspiring you yeah. and why? Yeah. Yeah. And so inspirational to me is a little different than aspirational, mm-hmm. like your highest aspirations to enter into the stream of consciousness. Like that would be a high aspiration, <laughs> but an inspiration would be creativity. Like David Lynch says, you know, finding, feeling those ideas that are within me that are transformational and being able to actualize them in the world, building a Hindu temple in Soho. I was going to say, this is like your creative practice. I'm sure you have others, but this beautiful floor that people can't see that you did yourself. Yeah, Yeah, and we haven't even started building the temples, which I'm really excited about. This is a a work in progress Mm -hmm. and that will continually go on as long as we're here. And it is, and the devas, which are the beings of light, which maintain cosmic order, also maintain cosmic creativity. So to invoke and awaken the devas with inside of us is to live in alignment with their creativity and with their cosmic order. So that's what I'd like to have happen here. Mm. That's what I want to be part of in this particular space. So I know you have a morning routine, but what part of it is non-negotiable for you? Getting out of bed. (laughs) Everyone says that. I need to change this question. (laughs) Everything's negotiable. So I just want to say thank you so much to Eddie Stern for joining me for this podcast. We did get cut off here at the end because my recorder's batteries died. So we are going to leave it here. And I hope that you have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get